who was it that did you get an idea from somebody who was it that inspired you to think like that if anything or anyone I mean, I know you're a bright guy. Oh, I know you're full of great ideas yeah, and you're very right. smart. It was Google, of course. <laughs> Google wasn't around back then. Yeah, that's right. I Neither forgot. was ChatGPT. Yeah. That's my yeah, best friend no, now. You, you find it funny. It was uh, um, uh, one of the first PCs with the big floppy disks and we had Excel. That was it. Oh, and and we're uh, like one Radio Shack, the big Radio Shack uh, floppy. Welcome, Mr. David Lamb, to our Atrium Developers Podcast. Thank you for making the time to being here. Um, I know that you are a legend in the Central Florida market, but I want to take a minute to introduce you. So David Lamb, uh, notorious career building Lamb and Company partner, started it back in 1988, right? Mostly, yes. Mm -hmm. Okay, it's a good year. 88 is a good year. Um, you've grown it into what it is today. I think you guys right now have over 30 employees, have done a lot of work throughout Central Florida, institutional, medical, office, development, Maitland City Center, which is a project we got to work on together. Right. So impressive career, architect by degree, and then frustrated uh, huntsman. <laughs> huntsman, <laughs> huh? Huntsman by hobby. Well, for those who... Uh... Who don't care much for hunting we'll just say i'm a fisherman okay How about that fisherman so icebreaker question not a lot of people know but we used to work together you were the first person that introduced me to in commercial real estate development with maitland city center so can you tell us a funny or memorable moment from the time you were my boss be nice well there's <laughs> there were two that came to mind but one hit me immediately oh boy yeah oh so, boy so one day I look out the back door of the office and this little meme looking person on top of a Ducati motorcycle drives up with a helmet about the size of her, her whole body. And the uh, bike probably weighs, what, 800,000 pounds, 10 times her weight, but this little f- four foot six or eight. Five feet tall. All right, okay. five foot right. tall person. It was standing there balancing the motorcycle with her, on her tippy toes like a ballerina <laughs> trying to hold the motorcycle up. So that was probably one of the most hilarious. <laughs> um, the other one that, that I didn't fully uh, appreciate but oh boy. is the... Uh, We're cutting this out. Yeah. No, the, the, so I had expressed to, to you that I wanted my children to find their own business and that I would welcome them if they wanted to get into construction like I did, that they would start their own business but not come into my business so I could go fishing. (laughs) Um, Needless to say, there is a human being called Emma who convinced my son while I was out of town to go talk to the president of our construction (laughs) division and uh, to get a job. So four days later, I come back in to work and my son walks into my office and I said, oh, son, hi, it's nice to see you. Um, what are you doing? You coming to visit? He said, no, I work here. So Emma put him up to applying for a job and he was hired by a president of construction and now been with us for 10 years. So I have to thank you for the joy that it's brought, but it also has me working longer than I thought I would. Well, we both know you're never going to retire. Uh. So we know that. But second, Jeremy is now one of your top performers. He is killing it. I hear nothing but good things about him. So you're welcome. Well, thank you. I'm, and I, I do, I am happy in the end that you convinced him and I'm very proud of him. 
You so. should be proud. He's doing Thanks. a great job. Great. Uh, he's lifting the lamb name for sure. Thank you. All right. Well, um, other than that, I wanted to start by you introducing yourself. So tell us about you, like where you're from, what are your passions? How long have you been in Central Florida proper? And what are some of the things that you like to do? So I uh, promised my dad I did not want to work as hard as he did and ended up going to architecture school at the University of Florida and not sleeping for about four years. Um, and when I graduated, I went back to Lakeland where I grew up and was working with a builder that I had been doing work with. And it was in those times when it was still, Lakeland was still a sleepy town. The market was still a little tentative. And mm. I guess that would have been 1985, 86. Um, and we worked for, uh, with a big development company that had uh, significant assets here in Orlando. And one day my boss came to me and said, look, I, I just can't keep anybody anymore. I'm closing down the shop. So I ended up getting an offer to come to work for a large development company in Orlando. They moved me here. Originally, I was going to design their industrial parks, their office parks, um, and do a lot of their marketing materials. How old were you at the time? I would have been 23, 24. Wow. So at 20, 23, 24, you're already migrating into a development company with right. an architecture degree right. and taking on like heavy projects. Right. So I walk in. They hire me, and just as they hired me, they fired their whole in-house construction executives. So I went from, in 30 days, I went from being their master conceptual designer of, of parks and, and such to running their construction division with a part-time bookkeeper, a general superintendent, and all our field superintendents. Uh, and we did everything. We had a whole floor of leasing agents, most of those who are my age now, or some of them have retired. Uh, we're up on the upper floor. Um, some names we know. So yeah, some Susan Ruby. Susan Ruby, the McFaddens, the uh, the Sweeneys, uh, quite a few folks. Um, and so the short story is, in about a year and a half or less with them, I had designed, constructed about a million and a half square feet of industrial projects um, wow. and then supported the backfilling of the buildings with the interior build outs uh, for, through our leasing agents. And that was one of the neat things is I learned real fast is we all want to build buildings. Con general contractors, it's all about building buildings, right? But I learned that we don't build buildings unless we lease buildings. Hmm. And so the the, the biggest thing that I saw in that was the team required to make sure that the most important thing that happens is that you build a, projects that meet the market, that, the, that can lease up quickly, and then we get to build more buildings. Mm. Um, and you weren't building spec at the time. This was Oh, those were, these were industrial shells, um, office buildings downtown. Um, I mean, it was Denver, Orlando, Tampa, Lakeland. Wow. Uh, the, he the, probably had the uh, assets in the millions of square feet. I would, wow. my guess is six, seven million at that point in time in the 80s. Wow. This is about 86, 80, this is now 87. Um, and then uh, some people don't understand, but um, a lot of things change quickly. And in those, t in those years, in the early 80s, they had incentivized the tax laws for capital gains treatment. Mm -hmm. So a lot of commercial real estate CRE was oriented towards 
passive income, passive losses. Mm -hmm. And that they were actually, if they didn't make a lot of money, it didn't matter because they were deducting it off their taxes. So people were investing in it like crazy. Well, in the late 80s, they changed the tax law back. And so a lot of real estate that had been underwritten under that criteria was starting to um, have real challenges. Um, the old development theory was build it, grow rents, refinance it, take the cash and go do another deal. Well, what happened in the late 80s was what happens in some of the market cycles you've right. seen, which is they were upside down in 100% leased with rents going backwards and capital calls. So I saw the writing on the wall. And so in 88, I uh, went out and had a partner for three years. Uh, and we formed a, a company. And then in 91, he and I split. We just went our different ways. And since then, I've been building buildings. With Lamb and Company Partners. With Lamb and Company Partners. And what was interesting about that period of time was the construction delivery was completely different than it is today. Back then, it was still old school. It was old school architects who drew plans and you had to do exactly what they told you to do. They were the master builder and we were just the grunts. But <laughs> I knew there had to be a better delivery method. Um, I, I saw it when we were in a development company where when you control the whole process, mm. the outcome is better. Um, because you don't have a choice. You have to meet the bank financing. You have to make it successful. So as we're beating our heads against the wall, bidding projects and trying to, uh, to get the next job, w one of the things that really struck me one day was we were doing a lot of bank projects and one of the recessions had hit and there was not one bank coming out of the ground, not one. And there was 25 bidders on this one bank that finally showed up. And I said, this, there's got to be a better way. So uh, one of the things, as you well know, um, that became sort of our little boutique niche was helping our clients treat a, a building as an asset. And in that asset allocation um, was to think of it as building net worth and asset mm -hmm. wealth. So to get it financed, to get it designed in budget, to then bring it to the market, whether it's owner-occupied or, or lease, speculative lease, required somebody who could see and manage the whole process. A lot of unsophisticated developers build their own buildings and they want it to be beautiful, and but yet it doesn't appraise or it doesn't meet a market right. rent. And so we learned that instead of bidding projects, if we negotiated our fee upfront, that we could work with them through site acquisition process, due diligence, uh, land use approvals, design, and manage the, the budget so that the going in um, uh, pricing and costs were, were the same as they came out with. And Right. And I remember learning that from you when we were, when I was first learning even to how to read a performa or, you know, do an underwriting model is you always taught me work backwards. So what is, what is the price that the client can come to? Right. How do we get the financing for that? And then from there, we go backwards and we design what we can for that, for that budget versus going the other way around. You couldn't, I couldn't have said it better. Right. Um, you know, most of those who are sophisticated developers know that the banks underwrite under a debt service coverage. Right. You back into it. It doesn't matter 
if you want to spend a whole lot more, you can. It's just more equity required. So right. you're right. We would sit there. We know that somebody's going to pay a certain amount for land. We know that the architectural fees and the impact fees and all right. the other fees and the soft costs for financing are fixed. I mean, they're right. reasonably. So the only variable left is the building. And then we, if we can design the building with the biggest bang for the buck, everybody wins. And then the outcome is successful. And would you say this was kind of the beginning back in 88, 89, the beginning of the true concept of design build? I couldn't have said it. You, you said it perfectly. Um, it was the first introduction in that time of a real contract form around design build. The only people who were doing what we call today construction management mm -hmm. process delivery uh, were the big multinationals on huge infrastructure projects. So down in this little world, you know, it was still a bid process or, or a negotiated process. So, yes, it was a transition period where the philosophy of the contractor being adverse to an owner was prevalent and was not a world we wanted to live in. So when you switch hats and you become the owner's advocate mm -hmm. and you have not you don't have to guard your fee with your life. Right. You become much more the friend of the owner, the partner of the owner, their teammate. And you know that if you don't, if you're not successful, they have a problem. It had many physicians, particularly, who are having to dip into their savings or their retirement accounts right. because they hired a GC or an, and team, and by the time they got done, the bank wasn't going to fund anymore, and they had to pull right. it out of their retirement. And now programs. they have a design building that's completely out of scope and budget. Right. So back then, were people going primarily to the architect first, Correct. designing something, and then trying to go back? to the contractor and getting it financed and budgeted and all that. Exactly. Wow, that must have been that must have been a bit of a um, a bit of friction between contractors and architects. Oh, back in that day it was terrible. You know, and and public bid work can be very similar today mm -hmm. as it was back then and that's why we don't survive well in that. Yeah. You know, it's nothing but a fight. I yeah. well, I can see it now still. I mean, I think you can still see the fight between what somebody in, envisions that they want something to look like and what they can actually afford to build, right. and then going back to trying to fit that into a financing model. It it can be very dirty. Right. So I I personally like the process of working backwards. Like right. you're saying, there's some things that are just going to be the same every time, with the little factors depending on whether if it's office, industrial, etc. But then when it comes down to like the actual building costs, you can always work backwards and then figure out, yeah, this your budget is X. This is what you can get for X. Right. So there's you eliminate a lot of that back and forth. And I think to even some regard, the time that you would have spent in designing something, if you would have gone to the design team first, designing something, then, you know, however long that used to take in, in the past, I don't know. Now, typically it's about 90 days. You know, they always say about 90 days. I don't know, back then when there wasn't AutoCAD and everything was by hand, I can only imagine how long those plans could take. And then going through that entire exercise, having something designed, like, nope, we got to go back to the drawing board. Yeah, no, you're, it, it's correct. The, uh, you know, there was always the word value engineering. And, you know, there's an overused term today called our team, right? Well, the, the team now is much more functions as a team. Mm -hmm. And it is, it's, Everybody's aligned. Um, you bring everybody on board early. Um, if there's no threat of loss of fee, then you you have nothing but uh, become an advocate for the owner's best interest. And that's a much more comfortable place to be as a true team member 
for the client's success. That's where we get the repeat business um, that, that we do. I also like the, the, what you said about the team. So another thing that I learned working with you that I still appreciate to this day is I remember for every project we were working on or looking at, we always had the client and the initial meeting. We had the client, we had the civil engineer, we had the architect, and then ourselves that acted as you know the contractor and representative to the client. But it was always, it seems like those meetings were always productive because we had the plans on the table we were doing a page journal, we would look at every page, the civil set, the architectural set, full MEPs. And it seems like that helped address every single constraint and moving part so that we could move more efficiently on getting the final design. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was, I was having a conversation earlier with, um, I don't know if you know Branson Bowen with mm-hmm. PVC. He's also the, the uh, founder and co-chair for CCC, uh, Closers, Contractors and Connectors. Um, but he's also in this work now, and he's he's working. He's doing a lot of great work with PBC. But he just came from a meeting where he said, "Oh, I, I had to make sure I had the architect, the civil engineer, everybody on, because that's how we bring the team together." And I mentioned, I was like, "Well, that's the only way I know how to do it, because I learned that from David Lamb." And then even now, post COVID, like during COVID, everybody got used to the Zoom, which I think it's kind of lingered. But even post COVID, and it's it's helpful sometimes that I still kind of force everybody, like, "Hey, let's have." An in-person meeting. Let's bring out the plans. Let's look at them because you will. We will eliminate a lot of questions in this one meeting than going back and forth via emails or trying to get you know our design team to communicate with one another and share information. So I've learned that from you. I remember that you were very strong. Like, nope, everybody in the room physically plans. Let's hash it out. Right. You can't get it all, but but you catch a lot of it during the design process. Yeah. And if you can do that, the volatility goes down, the risk to the owner, the risk to the contractor, and even the risk to the subcontractors goes down. And and our goal with our team member architectural and civil and engineering community is that they draw it one time. Right. You know, for them, it's not really a moneymaker. If they have to go back and redraw plans, they may get right. paid for it, but it's never going to be the same. Right. They'll never get it. So it's, it is truly a, a win-win all the way through. Yeah. And Obviously, you were, you were sharing about when you started in development and you, you saw what was coming. You decided to make some tweaks to how you negotiated business and how you went about development. And then you implemented that in your, in your operations with LAM and, you know, everything that you've done. But who was it that, did you get an idea from somebody? Who was it that inspired you to think like that, if anything or anyone? I mean, I know you're a bright guy. Oh, I know you're full of great ideas yeah, and you're very right. smart. It was Google, of course. <laughs> Google wasn't around back then. Yeah, that's right. I Neither forgot. was ChatGPT. Yeah. That's my yeah, best no, friend now. You, you find it funny. It was a, um, uh, one of the first PCs with the big floppy disks, and we had Excel. That was it. Oh, and man. and Word. Like uh, one gigantic Radio Shack, screen. the big Radio Shack uh, floppy. <laughs> um, well, I, I think two things. One was I saw my bosses that the development company went down in the eight, late 80s. Uh, lost everything. This was also a crisis in the market back then. Yeah. So, so the r- real estate market. And, and back then, there was a lot of banks involved. The savings and loan crisis mm-hmm. had hit. Um, and what happened was it was a domino effect. Everything was cross-collateralized. And one bank takes down a property and it just mm-hmm. says, and, and my, I felt terrible. But my boss, who was a mentor and became a partner later in life, um, uh, lost millions of square feet of buildings, and it was just heart-wrenching to watch. And I thought, well, now I've watched two 
businesses, one a general contracting and one a development company who didn't move with time, change with mm -hmm. time and had over leveraged and wasn't paying attention and, and lost everything. And I just swore I would never let myself get into that position. Um, the other thing was I actually had a banker friend who partnered with a uh, large developer from South Florida, and he shared with me the bank's um, format for underwriting. And it was a very simplistic sheet. You know, everybody's got these big fancy... Uh, development programs and and yeah. they can, and you can make numbers waterfall structures and water yeah and you can make all the numbers look beautiful right. whether they do or they don't um, but this was very simple it was a one page deal that said here's what the rent is here's what the debt service coverage is here's what the the uh, equity required is and the mortgage amount period that's it mm -hmm. and you hand that one sheet to a banker and say as long as the appraiser agrees with the numbers it's under it. It's done. And I thought, this is simpler than everybody makes it out to be. And so I, I, I don't know. I never had a finance class. I didn't, I wasn't a major in high finance. And, but I started to look at, at the thought process, which was very simple. If, if I follow these criteria, these are the three variables. And if the variables all match and the appraiser agrees, it's done. And then, if so, you're going to get your return as long as you watch your cost side on the back end. And if you deliver everything that you've uh, done, then you're going to have that guaranteed return. And, and that was uh, a simplistic way for somebody who has no idea uh, how to, how to uh, actually cap calculate a uh, capitalization rate through the discount uh, analysis. But um, anyways, that, that's how I got to understand the numbers. So that, that you're very self-motivated. And I know that, you know, you had mentors, but you were just, you were just very in tune with what was happening. You were keeping yourself informed and then you were keeping yourself hungry for information, whether that would have been through your banker friend that exposed you to your first performer underwriting model. But it, it took your effort to actually dive deep and understand all this because at that time you were probably now what, 25, 26. Correct. So that's a very young age to actually get into the weeds and be self-taught on these things. So what, what motivated, other than to obviously succeed, and I know that you, know, you wanted to build something, but what motivated you to go that extra step? Because most people don't do that. Fear. It was just, it was just fear. Um, it's a very complex world. Back then it was simpler than it is even today. Um, it was fear of failure. It was fear of disappointment disappointing anybody. Um, it was fear that, you know, if you have children, um, how to get them through school and, and life and how to create a future and a retirement and savings and not become a, uh, not fall into the trap that I'd seen my mentors and bosses do, which is spend and then go broke. And, and I didn't want to repeat that. Not repeat uh, the same mistakes. Yeah. 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 What, were you already married and had your first, Jeremy was already born at the time? I was 28 when Jeremy was born. Okay. So I had been in the um, first partnership company, and you'll find this humorous. When we decided to split, I walked in one day with my, to my partner. I said, you know, I, there's no hard feelings. I, I just want to go my own way. I said, I'll, I'll have a deal on the table within the next week. Um, 
and I want to go do my own thing. And the only thing I ask is my son, my old, my firstborn child is going to be born in 30 days. I just want you to pay my um, health insurance until he's born. So I walked out the door, went into a, a little 10 by 10 office. Um, my child was born 30 days later. I didn't have a partnership. I didn't have a company yet. And uh, I sat there for the first two or three months learning how to do the accounting. I pretended I had a company open and I pretended to post uh, payroll and I pretended to, to do that. And um, what is funny, because it takes a couple months to get your license transferred and insurance and all that. So as soon as that all hit, you mentioned her name and it's still somebody I, I love dearly is Susan Ruby. She gave me my first project by myself at that time. And uh, I've always, Loved her for it, and uh, it was successful and, and set the wheels in motion. Was that first project an industrial project? It was an interior build-out okay. in an industrial project that I had actually built um, through the development company that somebody else had bought in receivership and owned it, and then we were uh, they, had, they had leased it a bay, and I built the interior. And that's cool to think that you had, you probably were bringing Jeremy to the office and a little thing and just had him right there next to you as you're trying to do everything else and build a, a company. That's correct. He was under the desk while we were doing bookkeeping. See, he was meant to be. Yeah. He was meant to be in the company yeah. with you. So you, you saw it, you foresaw it. <laughs> so let me ask you something about what, what do you think is the biggest difference to anybody potentially trying to start a construction company today versus when you started? What do you think is one of the biggest challenges that people have now that maybe you didn't have or vice versa? I would have to say the bureaucracy yeah. all the way around. Um, it is much harder in all aspects, permitting, municipalities, per, uh, inspections, uh, um, interfacing with subcontractors, uh, um, the whole, the banking, getting a banking a project um, closed and, and all it, much longer, much more bureaucratic. There's so much paperwork and time just to get a pay, get your monthly draw is now takes full-time staff that you would have never had back then. So, you know, the cost to prosecute the work is significantly higher in all aspects, time, bureaucracy, staff to, to mm -hmm. supplement that and and then management in the field, the management of the trained employee, the uh, subcontractors are are not trained like they were back then. They were skilled. You didn't have to. They came from trade school. They they knew their craft. Right. And it was it, there was something for them back then. They were proud of their work. I mean, they were proud to be a carpenter and they were proud to be a great mason. Mm -hmm. uh, and a lot of times it was an art form in itself. Most of the work was they were uh, happy to produce something they were proud of and and that's it's gone. Um, maybe not a hundred percent, but it's it's difficult. It, I I notice that now. I think more in construction. I think a lot of people that I know sometimes just get into construction because they know they just can get into it and do whatever and make a buck. And then some of them are savvy and they grow in positions in construction. But it, I I I do sense what you say that that skill set of having somebody that's like, no, this is what I do, this is what I know, um, is, is kind of not as easy to come by anymore. No. Yeah, and our field personnel have to manage the subs, where in the old days, the subs had a foreman, they had a teacher, they had their, and they moved up through the ranks um, in, in their craft. Uh, now our superintendents have to 
I hate to say it, but they babysit mm -hmm. and they have to guide them. And many times they put it in twice, three times. We'll get it. We'll get it right sooner or later. Let's just keep doing it until you get it right. Well, I mean, that's also a way of doing it. Keep keep making mistakes until you get it right. But, you know, yeah. build build up to it, I guess. Well, and, you know, in the old days, we there used to be a saying. Uh, I keep saying the old days. I'm, I don't feel that old. But there was a saying when a client walked in um, by most general contractors. It was, you know, pick budget, schedule, or quality. You can have two of the three. Right? And it was, it was very appropriate. Um, people who were terribly budget conscious would, you know, uh, put up with something less quality or, or, or whatever. But right. um, now trying to manage any one of the three is, is a, a very complex. And you have to be astute. You have to um, manage all three of those um, criteria. And, and, of course, the pandemic didn't, didn't help that. So... How, how did the pandemic affect you guys overall? You know, obviously, you guys are a boutique contractor, but you're doing a lot of different kinds of work in different asset classes. How did it affect you guys the most? Well, during the pandemic, it affected everybody by uh, shortages of material labor mm -hmm. in all aspects. The volatility during that time in, in getting materials in, you know, you'd have a contract that was awarded before the pandemic and it just said, you're going to deliver it in 12 months. And it didn't say, oh, but by the way, if there's a pandemic, right? you know, so most of our owners were very, very helpful. They, they, they understood, they, they invested in the volatility piece, which was both in cost and time. Sometimes it was not very easy. It was never good enough, but, but many of them, we, we survived. It was a, a tough period. What I, what I tell you that's interesting since then, and you see it when you go out to buy a car, hmm. is the manufacturers have learned a new trick. And I don't know if this is a global thing. I would just say that at least in our world, they learned that the res restraint of the supply side of, su of supply materials allowed them to keep their prices high. Mm -hmm. And even though they produced or delivered less quantity, their profits were equal to or greater than what they were when they were at full steam. Mm -hmm. So we have, we have seen a, a new normal, and I'm not sure it's going to change, which like you're seeing at the right. car dealership. Right. It's now MSRP. Right. And so you want to order a car you pay full price. Hmm. Um, we're seeing that as well. And, you know, concrete, for example, keeps going up in price, but the demand is softened. Mm -hmm. And it's because they didn't buy new plants. They didn't buy new trucks. They tell you this is the price per cubic yard. And then you call us a week or so ahead of time. And we'll put you in schedule hmm. instead of a day or two delivery. So um, I, I was fearing that would happen. Yeah. And they've learned this. This is a something I don't see changing anytime soon. It's it's getting harder and harder to build buildings. Yes. And and obviously construction being one of them, but I think it's just I, I'm afraid that it, actually that will be the new norm. So I'm actually afraid that you have it's what you're saying is true because then it'll just be for people like myself and even younger people getting into this industry it's like it's just gets so much harder every time to yeah. do something. Um and you know what I was wondering something so you were saying back when you were starting to do all this just out of curiosity, what were the permitting timeframes back then? Oh, gosh. A week? I mean, 
you know, at, there was a period of time where you walked in and two days later you picked up this stamp set. Um, I, re- I used to go into the old city hall that was imploded during the Die Hard or the, one of the, the movie. Oh. doing the movie. Um, and I'd walk down there and uh, I'll never forget her name, Dorothy. And she was the clerk there. And we'd go to the building official, the one building official, and, and you'd hand in a set of plans. And if they might call you on the phone and say, hey, I got a problem with these couple things. If you can change these two sheets out and, you know, change this, uh, you can come get your permit. And we'd walk down there, slip the sheets in and get a stamp and walk out with a set of plans. Uh, can we come back? Can we go back to that? Can we come back to that, please? Let's go back to that. Let's just go turn in plans. We have one reviewer gives us a call two two days later. We make the swap. We walk out with the permit. Yeah. You know how many projects we could build? Yeah. In in a year. Yeah. Right now, it's taking minimum three to four months, minimum. Right. Just for review. I'm very well aware of that. <laughs> and and you know, quite honestly, it's almost to a point. That I, I hate to say it this way, but it's. It's a restraint of trade. Um, it impacts, and and I have empathy for the municipalities because mm-hmm. they're overloaded. Yeah. Um, but they don't fully understand the economic impact to a client, which is mm-hmm. the client is covering, has a note with interest carry on mm-hmm. their land, waiting for a permit. They're, that's costing them money for three or four months mm-hmm. with nothing happening. Um, we lose, currently we lose the cost uh, holding cost, right. we have to reprice once the permit. Because you guys are contractors, when you bid something out, how long do you have to Thir- hold that price? Thirty days. Right. So three months later, four months later, now pricing went up, or costs in different line items went up, and and those impacts are now realized. Um, and, uh, and most clients aren't buying their material 100% before they start construction. So it's not something you say, oh, let me let me reserve all my materials, buy them out. And then it go through permitting. A lot of people don't actually do that, so it makes it even more difficult. Well, to some do. some lenders won't let you. Uh, they right. won't let you do that. You have to get the permit before they'll give you a notice to proceed. So uh, that becomes a problem. Now we've been managing these these the volatility by doing early buy with most of our clients. If they're underwritten, the bank's just waiting for a permit to close. We're doing early releases and we're managing that. But it's. You have to be, as we said a while ago, you have to be a real tight team member with the owner, the lender, and everybody. So the communication is very clear. What are we doing? How are we staying ahead of the issues? And, uh, you know, what? how do we protect that volatility such that it doesn't impact the bank or or the client? Yeah, it's, it's, it's a challenge. Mm-hmm. It's a challenge getting everybody to kind of sync up on the schedule of the project, especially for financing. We're Invested Podcast is produced by Atrium Management Company. Thanks for tuning in. And don't forget to like, follow, and subscribe.